This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, How to Stay Married for at Least a Hundred Years. And the author is Darren Durrell Smith. And Darren joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Darren. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? Great to have you with us, Darren. This book, as you say, covers the resolution of every marital situation known to man. From the creator of this awesome institution comes an instruction manual geared only toward marriage in which he created himself. So what we're talking about is the Bible. Yes, sir. And that comes directly from God himself. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Darren, and why you decided to write this book. Well, uh, by trade, I am a computer scientist, and, um, and I work for a company um, in JVC, we, I'm a government contractor, and um, and I'm really I'm a deacon in my church at East Bethel Christian Center in uh, Akakeet, Maryland, and um, and I have a my wife and I we're over the uh, marriage ministry at our at our church, and we have a lot of friends that you know are married and they are you know they have a lot of questions, and um, and we 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 got lost of words for trying to answer them ourselves and trying to, you know, find from our grandparents, well, what's the solution to that? And so I got down on my knees and I started praying because my, 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 a friend of mine, he was, um, he was going, he was about to get a divorce and he found in the Bible, um, that he, he thought he found a solution or, uh, um, or something in there that told him in first Corinthians, uh, chapter seven, it told him that he can get a divorce. That's what he thought that he read. So when I went back and researched the scriptures, um, I found out that Paul was trying to start churches, and he was telling the people that were trying to um, to um, start the church, he was telling them, you know, if what well, God says, you know, husbands cleave to your mother, uh, leave your mother and wife, uh, leave your mother and father, and cleave to your husband or your wife. But then Paul stated in the next sentence, he said, "I say this, not the Lord." He say if they if the unbeliever wants to leave, then allow him to leave. Well, what my friend didn't read or skipped over was um, that Paul had made that statement and not God. So afterwards, he really kind of you know asked God to forgive him, and because uh, he was really trying to find out a way to leave his wife because she didn't believe at, on on the scale that he thought that she should have believed. So. After that, it was a lot more questions like that. And since then, they have they, they, she's pregnant now, and they have a wonderful marriage. And I've been talking to them all the time. But since then, it's been a lot more uh, couples with the same type of scenarios and questions. And then I said, well, let me find in the in the word where because this has all been done before. If it's nothing new under the sun, somebody had to go through this as well. So I researched the scriptures and I took every married couple that was in there with a problem. And I put it in this book, and that shows us they had they stayed married all that time, and they worked through their issues, and they didn't uh, divorce wasn't an option, so that's why I took all the couples that I could that had uh, serious problems, and I placed it in this book and explained it thoroughly um, through um, situations like fornication or um, abuse, uh, just different scenarios and different questions, uh, you know that I that I went through the book through the through the Bible with. Well, you go back to the Bible with specific examples from the famous famous people we know from the Bible. Yes, sir. You know, uh, for example, Samson and his wife, Moses and Zipporah, King Solomon and his wives, uh, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Abraham, and Sarah. I mean, the list goes on and on. So tell us about how you chose these specific examples. Well, a lot of a lot of husbands think that their wives um, blame them for no reason and accuse them for no reason. This is just an example from a husband's perspective. Um, and and I've, I've seen in the Bible that uh, Sarah did the same thing to Abraham. She told him to sleep with her maid, 
And, you know, and after Abraham brought him her a vision that God had given her, she tried to help God out and say, you know, maybe it's this way. This is the route we're going to take. And you need to sleep with my maidservant. And she gave him permission to sleep with him. And and then she changed her mind and said, you know, I'm feeling this way and it's because of you, you know, and, and he said, well, do what you want with her. So now Abraham stops following God and now he has to follow his wife and whatever she wants to do. He has to now follow that. Uh, the same thing with Moses and Zipporah. Uh, you know, Zipporah had a responsibility. A lot of our wives have responsibilities and, you know, everybody have their own responsibility. But sometimes, you know, if somebody's responsibility fall, then or somebody lacking their responsibilities, then they want to point fingers. But we have to look at who God looks at. And God comes back to Moses to kill Moses after Zipporah didn't circumcise her second son. So when that happened, you know, uh, the way Moses responded to her, he didn't retaliate like most of us do today. If I found out that, okay, I tell my wife, hey, Cynthia, circumcise our son, and this is your responsibilities. I'm going to show you on the first boy how to do it. After you do it on the first child, every other boy that comes into the camp, this is the instructions on how to circumcise him. And then I find out 30 years later that she didn't do it. My retaliation is going to be towards her, especially if God comes to get me and put me and choke me up and uh, about to kill me, because that's what happened to to uh, Moses. God was, came to kill him, and the poor immediately circumcised their 30-year-old son. And then she blamed Moses and said, you are bridegroom of blood to me. Well, that's an insult, really. It's not, a, it's not something that she she did as, as, as far as an honorable thing. She was upset, and then she threw, it says, she take his foreskin and she cast it, and it landed by Moses' feet. Well, to cast means to throw. So she threw it at him. So she was upset at the, at the fact that she had to do this, this gruesome act, especially if he's a, a grown man at this point. So, but Moses didn't retaliate. He collected himself, after, and God left him alone, and then God went to go talk to Aaron as he told him he would. But Moses didn't retaliate to, towards his wife. He wasn't upset, and he forgave her without her even asking. So if we was to follow those kind of examples or those kind of directions, then we would be so much further in our marriages today. Now, do you also address children? Yes, I especially address children. Uh, children um, in mixed marriages, a lot of people, when they get a divorce, they find themselves... Okay, I want to be. I want to get remarried. So when they get remarried, they often have baggage with them. That's what we like to call it today, and it's really not. But attachments, I would, I would say, in the, in the like for better words. Um, I, as for my example, for myself, I have two children. Uh, I have custody of my two children. I got married to a woman. She had two children, uh, and now we have a united house, and together we got four children, and now we got two grandchildren. And we're raising one of our grandchildren. Well, in one of the chapters, it's called um, um, the, the way that the child needs to leave is a time and a place for the child to leave the nest. And a lot of parents don't allow that time to happen. And, uh, and another, another, another subject that's very important is, uh, is no such thing as a step parent because that word is not in the Bible. And if that word was created by Satan, because if it's not in the Bible, it's created by Satan as far as I'm concerned. And so if I'm looking for a step parent in the Bible and what's the, uh, on a level of a step parent, what I'm supposed to be doing, what my wife's supposed to be doing, her duties and responsibilities for a step parent, then once I take and assume that, that role, you got phrases like, uh, redheaded stepchildren. I'm treating you like a redheaded stepchild. And I'm, it's, it's a demeanor. I mean, it's, uh, a degrade some someone's degrading somebody in that in that uh sense so if you take the word step parent out and you just say hey this is i am a parent because i am raising this child then the children don't have any problem calling the the mom or the new dad mom and dad it's the other parent that tries to jump in and say hey you know hey that's not your that's not your real mom. That's not your real dad. That's your stepdad. So you don't need to call them mom or dad. You need to call them step 
dad or stepmom and the, and the children comply because they're afraid of their, you know, their original parent. They're, they're afraid of their parent because of what they, what they're saying to them and they don't want to disappoint them. So, um, and in the word to back that up, Jesus said when his mother and his brother came to see him, he said, Hey, uh, your mother and brother is outside. And he said, who is my mother and who's my brother? Those who do the will of God is my mother and my brother. So he lets them know right then that parenting has any, nothing to do with biological. It's who's there in the position to raise you. So once we, we add that to the equation, it, it's really no problem because my kids wanted to automatically call my wife mom. It, they were, after she had stood the test of time, and they said, can we call you mom? And she asked them why. And, she, and they gave, uh, at being at six and seven years old, they had gave her a, 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 a wonderful definition, a wonderful reason of why. And she said yes. And it wasn't until their mom found out that they were calling my wife mom. And she just, you know, <laughs> didn't like it, you know. And she expressed herself to the kids. And by them not wanting to disappoint her, they kind of had some reserve about calling her mom again. Should a wife be submissive to her husband if he is not submissive to God? Well, once you, the, the big problem is everyone needs to mind their own business, meaning that the Bible instructs the woman to be submissive to her husband. The Bible instructs the husband to be submissive to God and love his wife and consider his wife. Now, if he's not doing what he's supposed to do, then she is not supposed to worry about how he's treating her. She's supposed to only worry about how she's treating him. Uh, a famous pastor named Smith Wigglesworth, I don't know if anybody remembers him, but before his wife, um, before he became the, the famous pastor that he became, he treated his wife so badly because she, was, she worked for the Red Cross and every night that she went to the Red Cross, he didn't want it to come into his house. So he let her sleep on the back porch for 25 years. And every time he opened the door that morning, she'd come in and cook and clean for him and, and didn't fuss. And one day, 25 years later, he asked her to show him how to read that word. And the, afterwards, he became the most powerful pastor in the 18th to 19th century. So I'm saying, I don't, I'm not saying that to say that a man should abuse his wife and then she should, you know, she should withstand that for 25 years. No, I'm not saying that. But she worried about reverencing her, uh, uh, submitting to her husband in reverence to God, vice how her husband was treating her, and then God dealt with him. So, of course, she should do her part, which God is looking at her to do her part and not her husband treating her this way or that way. Now, if, she, if, if he asked to marry her, she should examine his life and say, look, let me see if this is what I want to be with for the rest of my life and make her decision because she don't have to say yes. But if she says yes, she got to understand what that comes with because she's not submitting to him because he deserves it. She's only submitting to him because God says to. So she needs to show reverence to God to submit to him, not because he's worth it. We've only got a couple of minutes left, Darren. Of course, today marriage uh, is not uh, esteemed like it once was. Many, many, many uh, young couples especially live together uh, without getting married. And you use David and Bathsheba as a prime example of really uh, breaking the, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Right. Tell us about that whole situation, what you're trying to say to us. Well, in David and Bathsheba, David had like six wives. So all of them was, you know, he could, he could marry them. He could marry as many as he wanted as long as they was legal in that time. So they were widows. They were without husbands. And that was all okay with God. It was the one that he couldn't have that God, you know, got very upset with. And then he had... With doing that, it was different consequences of a downward spiral that happened just because he committed adultery. And, you know, uh, and it's, it was a setup from the enemy because, you know, the devil knows our qualification. Like, he knows your whole resume. 
even with Job, you know, when, when God, when he came to talk to God about Job, he told God all about Job that God didn't even tell him about, tell the Satan about Job. Job uh, the devil told God ab- about what he observed about Job. So he said, I couldn't touch him because it was a hedge of protection around him. So God, you know, Satan knows our resume just as well as God does. So Satan knew that David liked women. Satan knew that David was a, a, a man that was after God's own heart. And say, Satan was after David. So as soon as Satan got his hand in or his foot in, and the way you get it to foot, he gets his foot in is we're, we're out of place. And David was supposed to have been in the place of war. It was during wartime. He was supposed to have been out uh, during the wartime, during the time that he was supposed to have been fighting. But he was on his balcony looking at, and that's where the setup happens. You know, if you're out of place, now the devil can come in and he's allowed to do whatever he wants to do because you're not where you're supposed to be. And that's when he saw Bathsheba on the porch, and that's when stuff starts setting in his mind. So, you know, but, that, and, but that's where that scenario comes from. You know, I, don't want, I didn't want to take up all the time talking about it, but it was just, you know, once you're out of place, that's, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. Very good if you're point. supposed to be in, at work mm-hmm. and you're not at work, that's a recipe for disaster. Very good point. Very well said. We've been listening to Darren Durrell Smith. He's the author of his book, How to Stay Married for at Least a Hundred Years. Darren, tell us how to get your book. Yes, you can Google it. Uh, you can go on authorhouse.com. Uh, if you Google it, you can go on. It's, uh, it's on target.com, barnesandnoble.com, uh, amazon.com. Uh, once you Google it, it's about three pages of, um, of information that you can go to to get it. Well, thank you so much, Darren, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much, Stephen. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Tugginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, this book of poetry, Mystical Fairy Folk, Look for the Signs. And the author, the poet, the photographer, Joy Lynette Smith, joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joy. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, this is going to be very different, very interesting, and very insightful. Uh, you have a special gift. Uh, you call yourself a clairvoyant, and we'll find out why shortly. But let me read what you've written about your book. You say this, Mystical Fairy Folk is a colorfully illustrated poetic journey through messages from the realms of fairies and divas 
relating behaviors that we mankind can adopt in order to live in harmony with all that is. Well, it would be great if we could learn how to live in harmony. That's for sure. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a great mission to be on, Joy. <laughs> I totally agree. Won't it be lovely if we achieve that? That's for well, sure. Well, when we achieve that, that's a better way to put it, isn't it? That's exactly right. Well, first of all, before we hear some of your poems and you describe these photographs and uh, the reason for the whole makeup of each page, please tell us about yourself, your background, and how all this came about. Well, I was born in Australia. Um, I lived on the outskirts of a city called Perth, um, grew up by the river in Perth, actually, and spent a lot of my childhood playing in the bush and playing by the river. The bush, of course, is the forest, you know, what we call the forest in Australia. Um, um, <laughs> sorry. No problem. Break here. Um, when I was 21, I was in a car accident. And I ended up quite disabled, quite challenged physically, had a lot of trouble trying to walk. Um, and then 28 years, two months and two days later, I was given a hands-on healing and suddenly all the pain I'd experienced disappeared and I was able to walk quite normally again. This was an amazing gift for me. And it was quite awesome. I felt a great responsibility suddenly. Such a gift is not often given. And I thought, what am I supposed to do? How can I help others? And I started working overseas um, in France with people from Bosnia and then in Bosnia itself, in Sri Lanka, um, giving healing and... Uh, now I've uh, moved to London, where, where I do uh, hands-on healing um, quite frequently myself. Well, let's go. Ba let, let's go back a little bit, back to your childhood. Now, you say that you used to see things that others couldn't see, and finally you realized that you had this gift. Yes, that's right, Steve. I I, <laughs> I remember one occasion just suddenly realizing the penny dropped that I was seeing things that others didn't. I saw my uncle, he looked angry. I could tell he was angry because he had red all around him. And I turned to my elder sister and said, oh, uncle's angry. He's got all that red around him. And she said, you're mad. There's no red around him. And I learned to keep quiet about what I could see and realized that others didn't see the same as I did, which is okay. <laughs> but, but because there were also very lovely gifts by being able to see. Um, one example is when I had a tree talk to me when I was a small child and playing by the river, and uh, it told me to climb up onto it, which I did. And the tree... Um, said, lie down on my branch, which I did, and I looked down, and in the shallow, clear water, I could see water fairies, and they were uh, laughing and tinkling and swimming, and it was the most amazing sight, and it still is the most amazing sight. I always find it so wonderful and uplifting to see them when they're, they're just playing, and um, it, yes, so being clairvoyant had some very positive sides to it, indeed, Steve. But also, I'm sure, many skeptics and those who doubt. Oh, absolutely. And bless them. They're welcome to doubt. That's fine. Because I know that what I see is real. Well, you, you, one of the messages in your book is, we exist within and beside the fairy and Delvic Realms. Devic realms. Devic yeah. realms. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, there's, um, I mean, one just needs to read books like Harry Potter or, uh, um, you know, to realize there's 
other realms all around us. It's not just this realm. Scientists are starting to talk about multiverses, um, where, where different frequencies of energy exist in the same physical space. And, and mystics have always spoken about these realms for thousands of years, and physical science is just starting to catch up. Well, let's let's hear one of your poems. Uh, you have some favorites. Uh, why don't we start with your first poem, The Fairy Kettle? Right, let's do that. Fairy Kettle. Sound calls, one from afar. Water roaring. Pass through forest, past the mill. Water roaring louder still. Meandering path beside gushing stream. Spring abounds in glorious green. Gradually turns and rises to where one can merely stand and stare. Fairy kettle waterfall. Sounds abound, kettle catches all. Water swirling round and round, over the edge and falling down. Water rolling at a pace, overflowing gracefully at this place. Silken water flowing down, fairy folk surrounding grace. Well, that can give you quite a picture. That's what's great about poetry. It can really help us see things that we may not uh, normally see. And in this case, your photograph, which each poem has a photograph. Tell us about this photograph. Well, this one's quite unique in the book in that um, there's a little waterfall, which is quite stunning to be next to because there's always, for me, there's always fairies flying all around. And I had my husband take this photograph, and I said, now. And as he took the shot, three fairies leapt out of the water. And if you look closely at the photograph, you can see the movement of the water going upwards, and three orbs, or balls of light, where I could see fairies. They didn't show themselves the way I could see them, but on a bright summer's day, they were uh, visible to the camera's lens as orbs. And you could actually see the movement in the water, which is quite lovely, quite a gift to be able to see that. And you see them as a actual figure. What do they look like? Well, they vary. Um, quite often if they're with, they work with a plant, they take on perhaps the flower aspect of that plant or the flower of that tree. Um, They'll take on the colors, like the one for the geranium. It's, it, the geranium that I have in our apartment is bright red, and the fairies clothed in bright red. Um, the flowers in our apartment flower continually because the fairies in here are happy. <laughs> All through our winter, which has been quite harsh in London this year, the um, orchids and geraniums have kept flowering. So um, the, the fairies here work rather hard, but yes, they they um, they look a lot like small people, I guess, mm-hmm. but um, quite beautiful, quite beautiful small people. Yes. Now, what is the significance of the way the photograph is placed in on each page with the poem? Now, there's something. Uh, uh, specifically designed. Now, what is that? Well, each photograph is in a circle, in a circle, within a square, within the square of the page, because um, my husband and I study sacred geometry, and that to us is a very perfect way to present the photograph and the text that we've placed around the circle of the photograph. We've taken a, an excerpt from each poem or. A, um, pretty well that, and placed it around each circle photograph and then put the title above. And uh, the background um, of each poem uh, is, photo- is from photographs that we've taken um, that apply to the poem and uh, what the poem is written about. Why don't, you sh- why don't you share another one with us? <laughs> All right, I will. There's um, 
one that I love, and that's um, from the very south of Western Australia where there's a forest called a tingle forest where there are massive trees that are like the ants in Lords of the Rings. Lord of the Rings? Have you seen that, Steve? Yes. Yeah. So you know how big those trees were. Mm -hmm. These trees are absolutely massive, and the only place they're found is in the south of Western Australia. This poem's called Grandma Tingle, and she is an amazing, wise old tree. So here we go. Grandma Tingle. Slowly walk along meandering paths through the valley of the ancients. Suddenly an enormous tree. Oh, laugh. It is Grandma Tingle. Her nose one sees in profile, a wondrous shape indeed. Upon her trunk bulging eyes too. Some rush past her at speed. Oh, she's watching me, you think, as you approach and then go past. Her eyes are open, nary a blink. This feeling may well last. Have a plan and take a pace. Then turn around and watch her face. Is it your imagination? Or is she going in your direction? Then set off again along the way and listen to the silence this day. When again you turn, has she moved? Grandma Tingle, can it be proved? But some folks feel that as past they go, this statuous giant moves, but ever so slow. Slowly, slowly, but have no fears. She's been moving now for 400 years. Very well described. <laughs> yes, you, yes, very well described. I'm fascinated with your your rhyme. Uh, does that come naturally to you? Is that something you have to work at? No, it's quite natural to me. Yes, I love playing with words. Mm -hmm. Yes, I used to teach um, uh, particularly English and uh, quite enjoyed making up rhymes. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us to conclude our discussion? Well, um, one thing, and that is the thought that of being aware um, of our thoughts and how they impact on the planet. Um, I had quite a lesson when I was walking in Grisdale Forest in the area called the Lake Districts in England. And I was standing looking at this man-made forest, Steve, and it was in about 18 inches of water. And the trees had no understory at all because it wasn't grown for industry. And I was thinking, how on earth do these trees grow? How do the divas make them grow as they should? This is so difficult. And I saw two little men stand in front of me suddenly, and they said, no, 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 your thoughts don't help us, Joy. What we want you to do is look at what we do right. You humans have given us a challenge, but acknowledge what we do right. Focus on that. It makes our task easier. And perhaps in that way we're more harmonious, aren't we? If, if we... Pay attention to our thoughts. Don't think of the challenges that we create, but really think about what those around us are doing well. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that bringing harmony that for me was quite a lesson. <laughs> bringing harmony. Bringing in harmony. Well, Joy, we really appreciate talking to you about your new book, your book of poetry and photographs, and a very interesting, clairvoyant view of life. Mystical fairy folk, look for the signs. Joy Lynette Smith. Joy, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can buy it uh, through Author House or Amazon or Mortarstones in London. Dave? Well, thank you so much for being with us, Joy, on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. It's been lovely. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off? 
Fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Seventh Treasure, an international thriller. And the author, Len Carmarda. And Len joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Len. Good morning, Steve. Great to have you with us uh, to tell us more about this international thriller. You say this about your book, just kind of in general, just of an introduction Investigating the death of his sister in Granada, Spain, a U.S. Secret Service agent and a female lieutenant in the Spanish National Police Force uncover a conspiracy that threatens the security of that country and that of the United States. Well, that sounds like a uh, thriller and a page-turner. Before we get into the details, Len, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you decided to write this book. Sure. Sure. I'm originally a New Yorker. Uh, I had a 40-year business career that was mostly international. So I uh, traveled around the world, uh, part of my business, and also worked and lived uh, overseas for quite a number of years. We lived in Panama, the Netherlands, and Spain with my wife and my daughter. And uh, living abroad really just changes your perspective. Uh, it opens up more things to you, uh, things that don't cross your path when you're living here in the States. And um, certainly my time in Spain, uh, which is more than five years living in Spain, uh, was a large part inspiration for this uh, book. Uh, Spain has a, a magistry, uh, a magic and a mystery about it, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Moors, the Arabs from uh, Northern Africa occupied that country for over 700 years. So your book is, as you put it, a unique blend of history, historical fiction, and then ties to the tales of the Arabian Nights. <laughs> that sounds yes. like quite a combination. Uh, yes, and, and, and just to give you a little background on how some of that transpired in doing the research for this. Uh, one of the things I discovered was that the American author Washington Irving, uh, who we know for The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, was actually a diplomat and a historian. And uh, as a diplomat, lived in Spain, lived in the Alhambra Palace, which was the former palace of the Kingdom of Granada, uh, and wrote a couple of major books 
One was the conquest of Granada, which I came across uh, in doing my research for some of the historical fiction part of this book. Uh, but then also he wrote something called Tales of the Alhambra. And again, the Alhambra was the palace of the of the Moors during their time in, in Granada, which is still standing, by the way, in a fantastic place to visit. Um, and in the Tales of the Alhambra, he, very creative guy, he conjured up all sorts of fables and fantasies and, and myths about ghosts and apparitions and treasures. And I came to learn that some of his work in Tales of the Alhambra was inspired by the tales of the Arabian Nights, something that we all know, uh, you know, Alibaba and the uh, 17th right. uh, Sinbad the Sailor. Uh, so that got me to look into that, and I started reading about tales of the Arabian Nights, which I found fascinating. And then I, I just found a way to weave that into my story. Um, in what I believe to be a very plausible way. So the Arabs are the bad guys, but not in the way that they're often depicted in so many popular novels. Not at all. Um, without going too much into it, right. uh, there's, a, there's a conspiracy that starts at the time when the Arabs were forced out of Spain in 1492. Uh, and the mother of the last king of Granada puts together a plan where she thinks they may be able to recover their kingdom slowly and by economic means, not by war. And, and, and so she does create this plan. And uh, that is the inherent basis for the... Uh, the so-called bad guys, right, this, their this, intent to recover their lost kingdom. This, so it's not about, uh, you know, suicide bombers and Osama mm -hmm. bin Laden types. It's a very, very, very different approach. And uh, it's kind of plausible when you, you think about it. Mm. So uh, this conspiracy goes all the way back to 1492. That's a, a important plot of your book. Yes, it is. It, it, it starts at the time when they... They are forced to surrender their kingdom. And uh, the sultana, the mother of the king, tries to conjure up a way that uh, they can get it back. So how did you create the personalities of the major players in the seventh treasure? Um, you know, largely from people you meet or people you know. Um, when you start coming up with a character and you want to think about what what attributes, what personality do I want, um, it was easier for me to think about people I've known, I've met, and use that as the basis for the, the character. So Mercedes, uh, the police lieutenant in the National Police Force, uh, actually, it was a woman who worked for me in Spain many, many years ago. Mm. Gina is a little bit of my daughter. And, and so I, I did that throughout, just thinking about the, the personalities of people and building it into the, into the character. And then weaving it from there. Right. So Gina Cerrone, she is the sister of Jean Cerrone, who's a major character throughout the book. He's the hero. Yes. He's, uh, he's been a Secret Service agent. He currently heads up what they call the Attack on Principal Unit for the Secret Service, which is a major training unit. And when he gets word of her death from an apparent traffic accident, um, he drops everything and goes over there to, number one, confirm the identification and then bring her back uh, to the United States for, for burial. And while he's over there uh, and basically just preparing to bring her back home, they come across a couple of things that just don't look right. 
her apartment, her apartment appears to be broken into. So it starts off a whole series of, of good forensic examination. Let's look again at the car. Let's look at this. And, and in doing so, they, they find out that uh, her car was sabotaged. So it wasn't a traffic accident. Someone was intent on killing her. And then it opens up. Why? So you, you say that, of course, this, uh, Gene Cerrone and Lieutenant Garcia, they, they're trying to figure out fact from fable because of what you just told us. It goes all the way back to 1492. And there's this mystery, of course, and then there's, there, there's literally a silent revolution. What do you mean by that? Well, if indeed um, the descendants of the last king of Granada are in fact uh, successful in recovering their lands, uh, basically they're intent on, on transforming Spain back into what it was. So it would be an intent mm-hmm. of a silent revolution. A revolution, again, not accomplished by uh, violent means, but by slow and consistent economic power development and acquisition. And little by little, you, you turn around and, um, and half of the country's gone. So there's really no single hero in the Seventh Treasures. There are many. I believe so. I mean, the, uh, the Secret Servant agent, Gene Cerrone, uh, has to put together a team of people because what happens is that the police, the local police force in Spain just can't go any further in trying to find out, well, who killed her? What happened here? Uh, they just come into dead ends. And then every time they think they have a lead, uh, somebody winds up dying. And, and, and so it just looks like nothing's going to happen. So Jean Cerrone, who's had over a 30 year career, uh, in the Secret Service, retires, moves to Spain, winds up working with this uh, female police lieutenant. But then he conjures up uh, a way to pull some resources out of his contacts in the Secret Service, uh, get a little help from the, the local CIA people, um, taps into friendships with an old movie studio when you need someone to a computer specialist to create certain things. So he builds this very unlikely team of people who are specialized in certain areas as he tries to unravel this and 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 build evidence against who they think is behind this. Because without hard evidence, they go nowhere. It's just rumor, it's speculation. So the whole team has to, in fact, come together under his leadership, but it's, it, 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 each one has a very special contribution. And, of course, part of your theme with this is how this diverse group of individuals, how they trust each other and how they develop that. That's true. Number one, uh, and, and I know it myself, too, because I lived overseas. I was the managing director of a few companies. You come in, you're the American. You're leading a group of, of foreigners who... Uh, they have to trust you. They have to feel that, uh, you know, you're, you're not in it just for you. You're in it for them. You're in it for the company. Because in my experience, the people who I've worked with overseas were very loyal to the company, uh, very passionate about what they do. So you, you have to make sure that they look toward you with respect and trust. And, and so those are one of the features that I, I also thought the main character needed to build. Because he had to borrow resources from here and there, and, and some of it was kind of unofficial. So, uh, okay, I'll do this with you, because I trust you. I trust what you say, I trust what you do, and um, hope we don't get bitten in the rear in the end. Why is the number seven an important element in the story? The seven comes up a lot in the Quran and, and Islam. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the most important things is 
when you die, a Muslim dies, he goes through seven heavens. The, and each, each step in each heaven, they need, a, they need a different prophet. Uh, in fact, Jesus is, is one of the prophets. So as they go through these seven layers of heaven, and then they reach the promised land. Um, so that was there. There's also very physical, the, there is a tower in the Alhambra, which is called the Tower of Seven Floors. In Spanish, it's the Torre de Siete Suelos, which I made a, a significant part of it. Uh, and then we created seven associated companies with, uh, with the main the main business enterprise that's behind a lot of this conspiracy. Um, and I made up seven treasures. <laughs> so, but you, you just come across the number seven quite a few times. And they hack into the IRS database? Someone did. And <laughs> I remember when I, uh, when I first wrote that, someone... And one of the editing people looked in and said, you know, that's not that realistic. Except down in South Carolina, where I now live, somebody hacked into the South Carolina tax database. And has the Social Security numbers and tax information from hundreds of thousands of individuals back to 1998. So, uh, again, something very plausible. And... Uh, and in the book, there's a young man who is the one who hacks into the IRS database. But he does it for very positive reasons. He just wants to help people get bigger refunds. And uh, he becomes uh, part of the team before they send him off to jail to help Gene Cerrone in some aspects of um, computer hacking that he might need to solve his problem. We've been listening to Len Carmada. He is the author of his book, The Seventh Treasure, an international thriller. Len, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNobles.com. It's hardcover, uh, softcover. It's Kindle and Nick edition, uh, Nook edition. It's also available uh, through AuthorHouse.com. And this week, I am going to be able to get it into my local Barnes & Noble bookstore down on Hilton Head Island. Thank you so much, Len, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. I hope, uh, I hope uh, it was an interesting talk to your listeners. <laughs>